All right, how about you guys open up to the book of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. we got a lot that we're going to cover today, so open up as quickly as you can. I'm not going to read the entire thing as we oftentimes do because it's a very lengthy passage. Um, if you guys have Red Letter Bible Edition, anybody have that Red Letter Bible Edition? Um, as you can look on here, my Bible is actually not Red Letter, but the app I use has a Red Letter version. And there's a lot of red there, which means uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. Um, it means that this is a lot of monologue from Jesus. Jesus is dialoguing, talking, speaking. Um, one of the things that we'll just say real quick. So we'll be basically looking verse 33 all the way down to, where am I at? I think verse 59, which is a very large section. So what I want to do right now is just kind of give a very fast little background as to what's kind of happening here. And then we're going to jump in and take a look at as much as we can today. I'm not going to try to cram it all in if I'm not able to, which means that some of this might be left over for next week, but at least it'll all be one big sermon in a short amount of time. And I I promise you, I will do everything I can in my power to not speak super hyper fast so that you get lost. All right. That's my promise to you guys. Because you guys are you guys are cool like you. Um, anyways, uh, let me pray real quick, and then we will get to work looking at this uh, segment. And so, Father, uh, once again, we come to you, and we just recognize that your word is holy, it's sacred, it's insightful, it casts vision uh, for our lives as to who you are. It shows us those areas that we are broken and those areas that we have need. It reveals to us your love your desire to rescue and save and to deliver. And so, Father, we ask right now that you would uh, remove any hindrances that we might have from allowing us to see what Scripture has to say, any distractions that would keep our minds um, fixed on anything and everything else other than who you are. God, as well, I pray against any uh, false narratives or any weird ideas that we have had or just gathered um, along the way and that have kind of shaped or misshapen our understanding standing of who you are. So um, speak to us this morning and we just commit ourselves in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this uh, whole chapter, Jesus is dialoguing with the religious leaders and uh, there's, a, there's a big right out the gate irony that we're going to see in just a moment here that when Jesus is dialoguing with these guys, um, these are the people, the men in particular, um, that were, for the most part, responsible for running the um, religion of Judaism, first century. These were the ones that were responsible for basically making sure that anyone that had a hunger or a thirst or a longing for God, that they could be guided. These were the guides. These were the religious leaders that were supposed to faithfully be helping people discover who God is and walk in the ways of God. And yet, one of the things that we're going to find out kind of in a, in a twist of irony is that these very leaders who are to help blind people, are they themselves blind? The very ones that are supposed to be casting wisdom are the ones that are actually deceived by, by lies. And that should immediately cause us to have a lot of pause. Because, I mean, look, I'll just put it this way. If, if, if you are someone that's, that thinks you know something about the story of Jesus, this is one of those moments where we just catch our breath, we step back, we try to humble ourselves and try to analyze uh, what we think we know, and we approach the Bible, we approach Jesus humbly. We look at the sum corpus of what Jesus taught, we're like, okay, are there areas that maybe I'm missing something, and how can I approach the text, the Bible, Jesus, life, Christianity, with a humble 
way rather than just simply one that thinks I know all the answers because I listened to a podcast or because I had a professor that told me everything that they seemed so uh, assured of themselves. And yet the reality is that we might be wrong. We might have false understandings. We might have deficiencies in our understanding or the wisdom that we've inherited. And so this becomes one of those moments where um, the way I would describe this, or if I were to kind of give this entire teaching today kind of a title, I would call it The Dangers of Self-Deception and Groupthink. The Dangers of Self-Deception and Groupthink. And I'll explain some of this in just a moment. But like I said, the religious leaders were the ones that were to be casting the path forward um, that would lead others to life. Yet they themselves were horribly misguided. Which kind of brings up to me the subject of self-deception and or this idea of groupthink. And when I think about this, there's there's a lot of talk that can be done with regard to the subject matter of self-deception and groupthink. I don't have time to really go too deep into all this. I'd highly recommend just do some research on the internet and kind of discover the importance of self-deception, how huge that is. I think it's safe to say that we do live in a time in which even though we have so much information, um, with the amount of information that we have tossed into that information is misinformation. And that misinformation oftentimes is stuff that you and I believe. Um, in fact, I was talking with a guy uh, a few years ago and that his whole job in the military, get this, was to actually be the one that sowed misinformation for hostile people. His whole aim, his whole purpose in the military was to basically create a context where misinformation would be sown into the general public so that they themselves would be deceived. That was the whole idea. And there's a whole strategy to this. There's a whole psychology of this. But before I jump in, I want to just talk a little bit about the subject of self-deception. This will make some sense. So on the one hand, you have this idea of like personal self-deception. Personal self-deception. You can think of self-deception like this. It's a process of denying or rationalizing a way uh, the relevance the significance or the importance of opposing evidence and a logical argument. So self-deception involves convincing oneself of a truth, truth, air quotes, so that the one, uh, so that one does not reveal any self-knowledge or of the deception. In other words, to be so utterly self-denied or in a place of self-deception, you, you don't even know that you're deceived anymore. You've convinced yourself so much that something that you are holding onto is truth that you have now yourself been deceived. That's what self-deception is. Blaise Pascal famously said something along these lines. The heart has its reasons, which reason does not know at all. The heart has its reasons, for its reason does not know at all. In other words, there is something about us as human beings. On the one hand, we think we know something, but on the other hand, sometimes our desires misguide us and mislead us. Another way of thinking about self-deception is not only in the context of personal self-deception, one is self-deceived, but also within the context of a larger groupthink, what is commonly known as groupthink, or we can call this democratic totalitarianism. So democratic totalitarianism meaning this large body of people, democracy, uh, and this idea of totalitarianism. This concept that whoever is in charge or this larger group of people are the ones that you don't want to cross their opinion in a negative way. This oftentimes leads to bullying or people being canceled. We talk about that in our culture today. We've seen this happen before where, you know, you have this idea within our culture that if you have a certain idea or a notion or a narrative that does not run uh, harmonious with the prevailing notion, the 
the democratically received one or the one that's been uh, communicated by way of social media platforms, then it's very possible for you to be deplatformed or be removed or canceled. This is kind of the idea that I'm talking about here. So groupthink. Um, this is the phenomenon that occurs when a group of well-intentioned people makes irrational or non-optimal optimal, uh, decisions spurned on to urge the masses to conform. So in other words, the idea here, and this is all going to play into the larger text, the religious leaders that Jesus is confronting were the ones, they themselves were deceived. They were the ones that had the power. They were the hegemonic leaders of the day over the religious people, but they themselves were wrong, which we're going to begin to see here in just a moment, and Jesus' confrontation with them. Uh, I think there's at least three different reasons why us as human beings are so easily manipulated or why we are so easily prone into the state of self-deception. Number one, denial. Uh, we refuse to accept the uncomfortable or inconvenient facts about ourselves or about the condition of society. We don't want to face those things, so we just kind of deny them as if they're really bad. Or we, uh, secondly, kind of move to minimalization, where we minimize those things, or we downplay them. Um, no matter how painful things are, we can look at someone else's pain and be like, maybe it's not that bad. So we minimize it because we don't want to face the, the traumatizing reality of how bad something is. These are all forms of self-deception. Or another third one, which is scapegoating. And this is a basic idea of, another way of describing this is called othering, where you find someone that's not part of your group. You other them, and it's the way of saying, oh, yeah, they're the bad ones. How do I know that? Because I'm part of the good group. I'm a part of the group that, that proclaims and believes truth. I'm part of the group that has the moral high ground. They are part of the depraved human beings, and I'm not them. I'm part of this group. And so what we do oftentimes is leads to echo chambers, where we only listen to voices that are just like our own. Um, I think they call this confirmation bias, where we find people that have opinions that are just like ours. But these are all means by which we stay in our own little uh, silos of self-deception. I think one of the greatest dystopian fictions of all time, or at least over the past hundred years, some of you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with it. If you've never read it, I, I, I would urge you, urge you over the next like six months, Find an audiobook version, buy a used version of it, 1984. You have to read 1984. If you've never heard of 1984, that's part of the problem that we're living in right now. It's just the removal of sound voices and opinions and prophetic ways of identifying our culture at large. George Orwell was the author, so check it out. In it, it's kind of this idea there is a, uh, a nation, it's called Oceania, and it's governed by this all-controlling party. It was called totalitarianism, which means uh, the governing authorities or voices had a total uh, power over all society, over all life, over all thinking. What you think, how you act, how you spend your money, who you have sex with, all of this stuff is all part of the actual matrix. Which is, you know, Again, it's another good movie to watch, Matrix, you can get another idea with that. So I'm, I'm, I'm just filled with lots of great suggestions for you today. So the point that I would make is this. Within this context, there was something that happened within that culture of 1984 where they, they crafted a way of seeing things that was called newspeak. And what they did is they took language or words or phrases that were common or familiar and they twisted them just enough so that those phrases meant something other than what they were really sounding like they were meaning. So, for example, within Newspeak, uh, George Orwell predicted that what will happen at some point, you know, potentially with that, at least within this dystopian novel, um, he uses this phrase, war is peace. 
So within that 1984 uh, world that the idea was like war, war, actually going to war is, is a means to accomplish peace. Another one is freedom is slavery. Freedom is slavery. Another one is ignorance is strength. And these are all, if you just pause and think about them, for just for a moment, think about the phrases and what they mean. They literally mean the exact opposite of what they sound like. Um, another way of describing this, there is a, within the book, there are people that don't conform. Uh, these nonconformists are oftentimes taken to these sort of concentration camps or reprogramming camps, which, by the way, if you, I'm sure you're already familiar with this, but China has been uh, employing these for a very, very long time. Um, the Uyghur population, if you've been watching the news at all, you realize that they, they've been kind of uh, subjects of a lot of oppression in that country. Most of them uh, are the Uyghurs are actually Muslim. But because uh, Islam is outlawed in China, these people are being taken to these camps and forced forcibly reprogrammed. Within George Orwell's book, he describes these um, reprogramming camps as joy camps. We're going to go to a joy camp. Well, it's a joy camp. A joy camp is where you learn how to think in alignment with the larger group. The point that I want to make is this before I jump in, is all of these are forms and facets of self-deception. So the question that I want you to wrestle with and think about is how do you know you're not part of the self-deception? Seriously, how do you how do you know? Because of the news channels you watch? Because of the podcasts you listen to? How do you know that that might just not be part of the echo chamber? Like, how do you know this? And that's what I want for you at least to have somewhat of a thought somewhere within your head because this is so important that these religious leaders, that their entire of their life was devoted to the Torah, to serving God, it actually turns out they were completely wrong in everything. And like I said, this should cause you to, if anything, step back, take a deep breath and think, could this be me? So that's my hope. <laughs> You're welcome. Anyways, let's just jump in and begin to take a look at some of this because I think it'll all begin to make sense as we uh, read this. Now, again, these are the religious leaders. Jesus, I'm just going to jump right in and verse 34, kind of take a deep dive. That Jesus is uh, addressing these religious leaders, but these religious leaders, number one, we're going to see that they believed they were free, but in reality, they were enslaved. And this kind of gives us into a deep dive into the actual dialogue that's going on here. Uh, Verse 34, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is actually a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. This is probably a reference, Jesus, to the Old Testament, where there's a story of Abraham and Sarah. She had a bond slave. I know it's kind of weird, but that was part of the culture back then. And this bond servant actually had a son. That was Abraham's. It was it was not to be the heir of the household. And yet, at some point within the storyline, this slave is actually booted out of the household. It sounds uh, terrible, because it, it was terrible. And what ends up happening is the image is that this bond servant is not the rightful heir of the household. So really what I think Jesus is saying here is that the, the real heirs of inheriting all that God has are not those that are slaves to sin. In other words, one has to be liberated first. Now, these religious leaders are so 
uh, deceived by their own self-importance or by their own perceptions of how devoted they have been to Yahweh God, that they don't even see the fact that they themselves are enslaved. Verse 36, it says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is Jesus' way of saying, look, I need to want, be the one that liberates you. Now, this is where the conflict arises because these religious leaders don't I mean, some of them were actually having their eyes open to who Jesus was and to his claims, but the majority of them actually saw Jesus as a threat, a threat to their way of life, a threat to the systems and the kingdoms that they established, which, by the way, if you hear that are this uh, here this morning and either you are not a Christian or someone that's kind of wrestling with the claims of Christ or maybe someone that you thought that you were a Christian, Jesus can be very threatening to our lives. I, I just want to acknowledge that big E on the eye chart. Jesus can be very threatening to our lives. You know why? Because we oftentimes bring things into our awareness and our understanding with Jesus that we want to hold on to. We want to nurture. We want to harbor this sense of grievance and hatred towards somebody that's offended us. We want to hold on to this idea of, of our own self-importance. Or we want to hold on to this idea that, that I can contribute something to the greatness of my life because look at all that I've invested in myself. I've done the hard work. Certainly there's something of value about me because of all that I've done. And the, the reality is that Jesus comes and he says sometimes things that, that are deeply offensive and deeply threatening to us. But what we find ourselves is in this contest or conflict between what we perceive as to how Jesus should act or function and what jesus is actually saying here's here's the way things are and here's the way i'm going to work and what we see here exactly unfolding in the lives of these religious leaders is that they find themselves in a major conflict with jesus and jesus whole point is that you guys are you're actually slaves to sin this sense of being devoted loyal to these ways that are not in alignment with the heart and the mind of god verse 36 is so if the son sets you free you will be free indeed I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. And that's that's the, the general idea right here is the question I think we need to wrestle with and even think about is what place do Jesus's words find in us? Like when you think about what Jesus has to say, do you resist them? Do you reject them? Do you push them out? Do you try to contort them? Do you try to twist them around or say, maybe that's not what Jesus meant. Or maybe that's not what Jesus really said. Let's do a little bit of, you know, spiritual origami with what Jesus had to say and twist some things and turn some things and make it look like something other than what Jesus actually said in the plain sense. Verse 38, he says, I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And that's going to lead us on to the very next thing. So I want to really quickly just assess and think about what, what exactly is sin? So Jesus says you are slaves to sin. I think it's important for us to even just kind of pause and think about sin. Now, in short, uh, the book of, I think, First John describes that sin, all sin, is lawlessness. So that's just the most simple way of describing. What is lawlessness? Let's think about it. Anything where you are the one that is setting up your own law. You don't look at God's laws or ideals or ideas and follow them. You say, I don't like those things. I'm going to follow my own laws, which is another way of saying lawlessness. You're living in a way in which you are the one crafting, forming, creating, and abiding by those own laws, which, by the way, even, even, let's, you know, I've heard someone describe it this way. Even if God were to judge every one of us based upon the laws that we have crafted, 
I mean, think about how many laws you have established throughout your life. I'm not going to do this. I'm never going to judge somebody who's got a different skin color than me, or I'm not going to like have prejudice towards anyone that's other than me. And how many times have you violated your very own code of ethics? You're like, I'm going to eat really good. No chocolate cake for me. And then three days later, you're like eating chocolate cake. Like what happened there? You failed your own laws. Like if, if the, if the universe was, was judged, God just somehow made this concession. He's like, look, we're going to scrap my Bible, my word. We're going to, we're going to literally judge the entire universe based upon each and everyone's individual own preferences and laws and rules. All of us would still nonetheless be guilty and we would all fail. That's not how God does it, though. He does it by his standards. And all of us, Jesus would say over and over again, we are all actually slaves to sin. So what, what is sin? Again, sin is lawlessness. But another way to think about sin are five Ps. All right. Number one, it is a practice, something you do. Jesus says, whoever, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is also described throughout the New Testament as like a power. It's like his essence, his power that just looms there. Sin is also described as a presence, something that's there. I like to think of sin also as a poison that infects every human being. And lastly, it's a, it's a penalty. Like it brings upon itself these wages. The wages of sin is death as sin has its way in our lives and runs its course. At some point, its end game is always the same. It always leads to lifelessness or death. Now, the fact is, is that these religious leaders, they actually believed they were free, but in reality, they were indeed enslaved. Again, think about that. We as human beings can look at the lives in which we live and we're like, I'm free. I'm free. But in reality, the assessment, the true idea that Jesus conveys is might, might be radically different than how we have imagined or assessed ourselves. Again, the question then becomes, whose opinion will we end up deferring to? Our own or the one that Jesus says, here's the reality. Because Jesus will always say things, not for the sake of shaming people, but for the sake of speaking forth truth. So that that truth will then lead us to a place of responding to that truth and then us finding some degree of reality and freedom in the midst of that. Um, I think for us as human beings, especially in the West, especially in California, is we tend to think that our greatest need that we have as human beings is for someone to like us or to affirm us. What if, what if the real greatest need that we have in our lives is for somebody actually to speak the truth to us? That's painful. I mean, we often have to pick and choose this. I mean, if you were to go to a doctor and you had some sort of like a weird ache inside internally, you're like, I don't know what it is. I've been this way and it feels really bad. If you were to go to the doctor and the doctor's like, look, do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? Or do you want me to tell you what the results are telling you? You're like, ah, I'd rather just hear what I want to hear. You're doing great, man. Just keep up eating all the bad foods that you're eating and just go live a wonderful life. And then you die like six months later. Like, what happened? Well, the doctor told you what you wanted to hear. He affirmed you. What you needed was truth. And he comes back. He's like, dude, you have a really bad, like, I don't even know. I'm not a doctor. But, you know, big tumor or something like that. It's not good inside. And we've got to operate that. But we can actually help you and heal you. But we've got to, first of all, deal with the fact. The fact is something that needs to be addressed. The, that addressing that will ultimately lead you to a path that will get you on a, on a state of, of healing and well-being. But we have to face the fact first. And then we can find healing and wholeness. And this seems to be the issue that's going on here. These guys thought that they were free, but in reality, they were enslaved. Jump on to the next thing. Verse 39, verse 47. 
They believed that God was their father, but in reality, their father was dot, 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 the devil. And this gets really ironic here. Let's take a look at verse 39. And they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. And then Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing your works of your father. So just pause real quick and just consider and reflect upon some of what Jesus is playing out here. Um, They are literally sons of Abraham. In other words, Jews, first century, were very good at keeping track of their lineage. Um, Prior to the temple being burned in AD 70, uh, there were archives, and these archives basically gave this massive lineage of where all the tribes of the Jews were. And up up until that point, they, they basically would look at their lineage and have a lot of pride in this. And Jesus affirms that, yes, indeed, you are like part of the family of Abraham, but in reality, you don't act like Abraham, because Abraham faithfully trusted and obeyed all that God had, even in the face sometimes of opposition and hardship and challenges. But you guys are not, you're not faithfully believing what God says. Because if you were really believing what God said, then you would take all the words that I'm saying and live according to them. But you're not living according to them. Which which by your very actions seem to contradict what you're saying. But then Jesus goes on to say, or actually say, they responded to Jesus, and then they said to him, uh, we were not born of sexual immorality. Uh, we have one father, even God. So obviously this is a reference to Jesus when he was born from Mary, Virgin Mary, and there was all sorts of obvious rumors that were circulating about Jesus. Imagine this, that they're bringing this up. So again, when people are confronted by truth, what, what do they oftentimes do? Like personal attack, right? I mean, so some of you are like on social media, like we've never lived in this age of you know life where people just personal attack someone because of the sake of truth. Really? Like it's been kind of going on for a very long time. It's even in the Bible. Like Jesus confronts them with truth, with facts, reality. They get offended or hurt and so they counterattack Jesus uh not with wisdom, not with logic, not even with good solid answers, but with personal attack. Yeah, well our mom was not a harlot. Uh, can you imagine? Like, this is exactly what they're saying. Like, like your mom obviously has a very bad history and background, and so therefore, you might have been grown up in that family, but we, we, the elites of our day, have, you know, wisdom and knowledge and authority because of all that we have been given. And so, again, within this dialogue, he goes on to say, verse 42, then Jesus said to him, if God were your father, you would have loved me, for I came from God, and I'm here. I came not on my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear or hear my word. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And it is your will to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand for truth because there is no truth in him. Where he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and he's the father of all lies. But because I tell you the truth... Do you not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? But I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And this reason why do you not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus' whole logic here is that you guys claim to be sons of God. But in reality, your actions, the way that you're processing, if you were truly sons of God, you would be acting in a way that is consistent with the character and the nature of who God is. And you're not acting in consistency with the nature and the character of who God is. You're seeking to kill me. You're seeking to silence me. You're seeking to lie about me. 
Like, in other words, this, look, again, I've said this before, that we live in a culture right now where everything is proned and wired to suck us in. If you are a follower of Jesus, social media is a dangerous place for you. Please listen to me for a number of reasons. Number one, it's dangerous because do you even know that where you're being feasted on or what you're feasting on is actual truth? Secondly, if you think you know what's truth, and then you begin to take your stand or create a platform for yourself. Are you operating in a way that is consistent with capital T truth, Jesus? Or are you out there just kind of causing, you know, more commotion, more lies, more stirs, uh, just because you can? In other words, or are you being a voice for love and forgiveness and kindness and goodness? Again, everything, there's this mindset, I think, in today's world, especially in the mind of many who would claim to be followers of Jesus. That you can use and mobilize these certain platforms as a means of uh, staging your counter-argument. But your counter-argument is filled with anger and vile and venom and evil and frustration and anger. And at some point, you have to step back and say, gosh, it, that looks a heck of a lot like Satan. It looks like the devil. And there's another phrase that might be unfamiliar. It's the, the word uh, Machiavellian. It's the idea of like accomplishing good at whatever cost. Machiavellian mindset is not the mindset of Jesus. This idea of like we're going to do whatever we can to promote good, even if it is through the instruments of evil. At some point, you just got to step back and scratch your head and be like, what? What kind of logic is that? Sounds like devil logic because it is devil logic. It's not the heart of God logic. The heart of God logic says, I will lay my life down. I will give myself for others. I'm not going to look for ways to kill my enemy. It's not the logic of Jesus. The logic of Jesus is, I will love my enemies. And, and I realize this might be offensive for some people, but it is the truth that Jesus says. And at some point, we have to recognize that this is, this is not me saying something. This is Jesus saying something and us having to just kind of wrestle with what Jesus has to say. Jesus can be and will always be controversial. But the fact of the matter is, is we cannot afford to live in a state of self-deception. And I want to finish with this. I'm done. <laughs> I was going to read the last section, but I'll preach for another hour, so I'm just going to stop. So I'm going to just circle back. If you guys want you open up or look up uh, on your page to verse 31, 32. I don't think it's up on the screen. I just want you to read this and listen to this. Because the big question I want for us to wrestle with, with is how can we actually be freed from self-deception? How do we break out of the cycle? Because I, I don't think this is like a, um, this is like a, this is not a partisan thing. And again, we always want to create it into a partisan thing. In other words, the left wants to, to demonize the right, and the right wants to demonize the left, and we want to have some belief that we are on the moral high ground. Everyone else that's not on my little moral high ground is evil and wicked and somehow to blame for all the ills and woes of society at large. And what we end up having is just this cycle of violence that never, ever goes away. And it might not be actual physical violence. It might be violent in terms of language and um, um, rhetoric and the way that we talk about other people. But at the end of the day, at some point, how do we break out of the cycle of violence that's just part and parcel of our culture today? And by the way, it's not getting any better with social media. In fact, if anything, social media is just like uh, exacerbating it because of the algorithms and that kind of keeps us locked in our own echo chambers and I'm, I'm just like you guys like I, there's times I, I flip on my social media and I find myself filled 
filled with such incredible anxiety and rage and anger and frustration. It's like, how can this be happening? And yet, at the end of the day, it's like all of that rage and anger and frustration, if that's not channeled by way of the Holy Spirit or harnessed by the power of the Holy Spirit, then it will just erupt and bring a, a devastating effects upon our culture. And I think that's where our culture's at constantly today. My, my hope would be that we break out of that and find a different way of life that's not left, not right, not conservative, not liberal, not progressive, but Jesus. Very, very deeply rooted in the historic Christian faith that Christians have always navigated from the very beginning. And here's what it is. Jesus says, just listen to the words of Jesus. Then Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'm going to read it again. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I think that what we need more than anything today in our culture is to know truth. Truth that actually liberates us, frees us to become the people that Jesus wants us to be. Not truth so that we can then use whatever version of truth that we think we possess now and we own as a weapon to slice off the neck of our enemy. Like that, that's a misuse. That's going back into this Machiavellian power grab to crush and destroy as opposed to bringing forth God's life that brings forth life and forgiveness and wholeness and healing. So my hope would be that no matter where we're at within this paradigm or within this matrix, that regardless of how self-deceived we are or how much we actually think we harness and possess and propagate the truth, for us, if anything, to just kind of take a deep breath, humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, to acknowledge that we will one day have a day where we will stand before this almighty God and give an account of our lives. He loves us. He's a great God. But he's a God of truth. And he's a God of love. And we need his truth. And Jesus seems to be very clear that as we devote ourselves to him, abide, live daily in his word, then we will be his disciples. That truth will be known to us. And that truth will then set us free. My prayer as for us as a community of people living here on the Central Coast, that we would break ranks with the typical narratives and the movements that are out there in our culture at large that are populating our world and become a radically different community of people devoted to the way of Jesus and what he has to speak, which is going to look like loving our enemies, praying for those that take advantage of us and misuse us. Again, these aren't my words. These are Jesus's, by the way. And that we live a radically different way. This is what Jesus calls us to. So, I'm done. I'm going to save the rest for next week. Can we all stand? I want to pray over us. And as we uh, wrap this up, I, I realize that for maybe some of us, I mean, the, the most important thing, I think, for us to bring all of this back into, hopefully, a sharp relief, is that it's not about just knowing truth in terms of facts and data. That, that truth is capital T truth. It's ultimately Jesus himself. It's about having this relationship with Jesus. Jesus, later in that whole dialogue, he's going to say, look, those that, those that know me, love me. This is Jesus' aim, that we would have love in this relationship with him. That involves 
being vulnerable. That involves acknowledging the fact that even though I may have areas of brokenness in my life, that this God loves me and has devoted himself to me and that he's deeply committed to help making me to become a person that looks like him, a.k.a. disciple. That's my hope. And so I want to pray for us, and then we'll dismiss y'all. So Jesus, thank you for our time here. And we pray, Father, that as we go forth into this world, that you would take our lives, and no matter where we're at, no matter what types of things we may need to repent of or turn away from or acknowledge or or to even invite your Holy Spirit to just shed light on. God, we don't want to walk in a state of self-deception. But we want to walk in a path of freedom. And that freedom comes by being linked with who you are in a life of discipleship and following you. So God, help us as we live this out. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.